that a beautiful rendition? I love the violin. I understand that Jake organized it. What do you call that? Arranged it. Arranged it. Yes, he arranged it. So that was good. It helps to have those musicians play it, right? I would ask that you take your Bibles. Let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1. We go from the last chapter of the Bible last week. We go back now to one of the first chapters of the books of history in the Old Testament. So we saw last week how the story ended. Now we're going to go back and look at a specific instance within that tale. 1 Samuel chapter 1. You might want to start the first of the Old Testament, kind of work through the books of the law, and you'll come to uh, the books of history. Now, as I said last week, uh, Helen taught us that we are to live by the biblical bias. I love that word. The biblical bias of hope. That when we read the end of the story and we find out that God wins... We can live each day recognizing that his story is going to be lived out in ultimate completion. and Eden is going to be restored. God's intention for us is going to be lived. We're going to have a new heaven and a new earth. And we're, we have a bias of hope no matter what happens in this whole experience. But as she also so eloquently explained to us, on any given day, we're not living in that completion. We are, in fact, living in a place where we often feel the tension between the cross and the crucifixion and the innocents who die among us and the resurrection, where we have this tremendous experience of God's overcoming power in the midst of that. And so it's, it's no coincidence that the lectionary today takes us from the last chapter of Revelation and takes us back now to the story of Hannah and her barrenness, her emptiness, the inability of her to do what it was that she felt would complete who she is as a human being. Now, this juxtaposition is a tension that God demonstrates throughout all of Scripture. Uh, there is never a moment, whether you have the, the birth of Christ in Bethlehem and then the loss of the innocent children as Herod tries to kill this one who's going to threaten his throne. There's never a moment in, in all of Scripture where you don't have the cross, the deep pain of humanity, and the promise of the presence of God, His working in and through our lives. And this tension that is uh, present within your life and within my life is, in fact, a great growth-producing experience in which we have to live out our lives in reality. God does not just take us out of the world and, and say, here, you're suited for eternity. He says, no, you have to grow in the midst of this. You have to be strengthened and tested and, and transformed and changed by the waiting that is happening amongst us. And so we're going to go today to that, that kind of balance from what Revelation says to the angst of the human condition where we're unable to do the things that most matter to us because they are beyond our control. We have to trust in God. We have to acknowledge that, that there's, there's no solution to most of the things that overwhelm us. But there is a God who's more than capable 
of not just seeing us through, but leading us through to an ultimate good and an ultimate completion. So that's the story of Hannah in the midst of the biblical tale. Now, it's, it's helpful not just to recognize that there's this juxtaposition in Scripture between the cross and the resurrection, between the pain of life and the power, to recognize that the names of the people... Now, these are real, real people. This actually happened, but it's fascinating that their names in and of themselves are a juxtaposition to what they're experiencing in their life. Hannah, of course, is the best example of that. She's crying out to God for a child when her name means favored. And yet she does not experience favor with God. She has her womb closed, we're told, by God. Similarly, Elkhannah, the husband of Hannah, has a name that means God creates. And yet here's his beloved, the one that he wants so much to, to see happy and satisfied, and he can't create a child within her womb. She's unable to conceive, and he's unable to create, and he lives in this juxtaposition of what he would want to do, but it's not happening in his beloved's life. Similarly, and perhaps you could argue this is the strongest juxtaposition, is Elkanah's first wife, Penhanah. She's vicious. As you'll see, she's a, a catty, cruel sister wife who is anything but a jewel. There's nothing beautiful about how she's acting in this family and in this life, and particularly in Hannah's life. And uh, her cruel rivalry uh, that so plagues humanity and sisters and brothers and people within uh, businesses and communities, this cruel rivalry betrays her name. Now, of course, we do come to Samuel, and uh, that's the child that God finally gave Hannah when he heard and answered her prayer. And so she names him God here, Samuel. And of course, the only other name in the story is Eli. And Eli is the high priest. And of course, his name means my God or the God of me. It, it's more an example of him fulfilling this this great first commandment, thou should have no other gods before me. We studied that a few weeks ago when we recognized that if there's anything besides the living God at the center of your life, if there's anyone besides the living God at the center of your life, then they will be the God of me, not the living God. And so Eli, the one who loves God, is his name. So let's read the event. Keep those names in mind as you read through here. If you, of course, have the time, you might want to read a lot of Samuel and get it, go on ahead and see what happened. The greatest high priest that ever lived was born of a barren woman. Whenever the day came, the historian writes, for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penhanah and to her all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival Penhanah kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? 
Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk. He said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel saying, Because I ask the Lord for him. Now keep that open before you and let's pray. Father, we recognize that we are in a relationship with the Eternal One. That boggles everything about us, not just our minds, but our emotions, our thoughts, our dreams. It causes us to have all kinds of of aspirations and desperations. We come to you today recognizing that you're the one that established that relationship and that you're the one that loves us and you're the one who died that we might have life. So be with us. Talk to each of us today. We're, we're all in a very different place. We're unique in this journey. But speak to each of us. Pour out upon us just as you're pouring the rain. We're so thankful for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Waiting. Waiting. Why is waiting on God to answer or to do something such a hard experience in our lives? I've heard lots of different explanations of why waiting is difficult. And one of the things that I think in my own life is that I'm impatient and I want God to do it now. As someone said as they were leaving, yeah, I pray, God, do it now, and that's not fast enough. (laughs) We want God to do it. Is that that all that's happening in our lives when we're waiting? Theologians go on to express that perhaps it's 
when we're required to wait that we feel unimportant, like we're not worthy of God even paying attention to us or, or answering. Perhaps we're not cherished. Perhaps we're not the favored one. And so we feel less than and put down and, and not sure. And perhaps then we start thinking, well, maybe there isn't even a God. Maybe no one's listening to this anguish I'm going through. And, and perhaps it's easier to think that there's not a God than to think that there's a God that doesn't care about me and who I am and what I'm experiencing. The truth is, and, and you can see this all the way throughout Scripture, it's, it's true in, in virtually every relationship that God has with a human being, this juxtaposition, this difficulty and miracle, this crucifixion and carrying the cross and the resurrection and the power of God overcoming, that experience is so universal that we note that how a person responds to waiting is probably more a reflection of their personality than their spiritual maturity. That it has to do with how they deal with life overall and, and what God is doing. But in this story, we, we have the great opportunity to see people actually living their lives and, and what happens to them when they wait or they don't have to wait or they love someone who's waiting. And how do we respond to that and what can we learn from it? So I would encourage you to just, as we, as we look through these words, to put yourself in the place of each of these people. When and how has that been true in my life? And how did I respond? Was I like this person or was I different from the ones in the biblical text? Let's start with Hannah herself. Like Sarah before her, who had to wait until she was 90 years old before God opened her womb and gave her Isaac, the laughing one, the one of promise. Or Elizabeth, who comes after her, who has to wait until John the Baptist is conceived and forerunner of Christ. Hannah became distraught. She's anxious. She's overwhelmed. She looks as though she's drunk by the way that she is in such anguish in her barrenness. And so she cried out to God. Is that how we respond when we're asked to wait? Now the scholars suggest that the reason she cried out was actually a very economic reason that that the, a woman in that day, if she didn't have children and she got, uh, got older and her husband passed away, she would have no one to care for her. And so Hannah would be under Peninnah and her children and she would no longer be the favored wife. She would now be a slave, a servant in the home, serving the children and the cruelty of Peninnah. Now, it could be. Perhaps she didn't want to just go from favored wife to slave. I'm sure that wouldn't be a pleasant experience, but this seems to be deeper to me. And, and I've seen it in people. It's, it's seldom the economic place that causes people real angst and, and existential pain where they're really in prayer to God. It, ha it has something more to do with not having those desires fulfilled, not living the life that you thought you would live, not being the person that you thought you would be in the relationships of your life. And, and it's, it's a very a personal kind of longing. Her heart, I think, was breaking. And it was breaking because she couldn't fulfill this desire that she had. She couldn't do it. 
Now, it is true, and I've noticed this both within my own life, but as I've worked with people for decades, is that we all come to a point as we're growing in Christ where we kind of stop praying for the inconsequential things, getting the parking space or other kinds of things that uh, we might have prayed for when we're younger. But we start praying more for the things that we really have very little control over. The salvation of a child, a parent, a friend, that they would be able to not just isolatedly live their life, but live in community and the love of God and be prepared for eternity. When we pray that prayer, we recognize that we, we can't do that for them. They have to choose to love and to love God and to love others and to be a part of community. But that's what we pray for as we're older. We pray for those deep things of God. We start praying for the work of God, for his justice, for his righteousness to come, for his kingdom to come, so that this craziness of this world could somehow be addressed by the change of the human heart. And we start praying diligently for how can that happen? We know it's beyond our control. We know that we can't do it. There's nothing that in human energy can change the human heart, but we pray for that. And we pray for something that is beyond us. That is what happens when we wait. When we recognize that we didn't get what we wanted now and we begin to go into deeper places of prayer and, and relationship and trust building and faith building as we become a different creature because we wait on the Lord and he is with us. Now as we pray for those not only who suffer but those who cause suffering, as we pray for what God is doing in the world, we become different creatures. We, we see it here within Hannah. She comes to the point in her prayer and her, her waiting that she says to God, if you will give me a son, then I will give him back to you. Now think about that. Did that mean before she came to that point of growth, she wasn't willing to give her son back to God? And all through the Old Testament, if you had a child, it was considered a gift from God. And on the eighth day, you dedicated them to God. We still do that today. We just did it a couple of Sundays ago where we lifted a child before God and we dedicated them to God and to his purpose that, that they would live a life that's deeper than just this material, temporary, physical experience. And that's always been the call of the, of, on the family of God and the, the mother and father of God. Was she not willing to do that? Did she need to come to a point of recognizing that, that her children belong to God and being willing to give him back? Does waiting cause us to be aware of things that we're not aware of before so we can become the kind of mother, the kind of father that can raise the greatest priest in all of history, Samuel? Did she have to become different because of her waiting and because of who she is? Do we have to become different such that we give our health and our careers, our finances, let alone our children and our grandchildren to God? Does the waiting that we do in life change us such that we can be the people of God, doing the work of God? It's interesting that in Peninnah's life, she didn't have to wait. And what did that do to her? The result was she felt all superior. 
you know, here's Hannah, she can't have babies, I've got lots of babies, I must be a better person uh, than she is. And so she ridiculed her, she provoked her, she, even when she, Hannah tried to go to church, to the temple, she provoked her to tears so she couldn't partake of the blessed sacrament of God, the blessed bread that is given to the people of God. She would not eat, and it was in that place that, that she was so horrifically evil. Let's think about that in our own lives. Is there anyone to whom we feel superior? In whatever way? And if so, why? Why would we think that because something came to us easily, that that makes us superior to someone who's struggling and trying to follow God and working things through with great determination and prayer and angst and calling out to God. Where does superiority come from and what does that pride to do to our souls? How does it move us from being a jewel to in fact being a caustic, cruel human being? And how do we live our lives in that? Do we overtly or covertly put any person down? Do we compete with them in the temple of God? And turn it around. Turn it around. Is there anybody who is ridiculing and putting us down because we're struggling with God? And how do we respond to them? Do we let them do that to us? Do we let them steal from us that tremendous personal relationship that we have with God that transforms us and we know He does? Do we allow other people to take away from us what God is doing in our lives? In my own life, as I have walked this journey and failed and struggled and, and experienced waiting and wanting, and I've come to realize that what makes me able to even be a pastor is not so much the education but the experience of failing, being where someone is, listening to what they're walking through and identifying with them, not judging them or feeling superior to them. And together we are walking in that wonderful light of God, that wonderful power that God has given to each one of us. It is not by my success, but it's by my pain and failure that makes me able to be a human being. And that's true of all of us. It's what unites us in the ability of God. And what about Elkanah? The husband of Hannah. Now, as a, as a man and as a husband, I'm kind of embarrassed about Elkanah. Uh, in two ways, he kind of messes with poor Hannah. The first he does is he shows her favoritism. Uh, he does it first out of love and then out of pity because she doesn't have a child. And you can imagine what that favoritism did to Panah and this cruelty and the increase and what happened in that family because he was not a loving to both. And it's a, a horrendous things that happen. But the second thing is even more embarrassing he downplayed her barrenness. He didn't enter into or understand the depth of her pain. He showed that usual male egotistical insensitivity when he says, in essence, aren't I enough? 
Aren't I better than ten sons? What does that do to her? And what does it do to us when the people who love us downplay the pain that we're going through and don't enter into it and cause us to want to think, well, look at all this stuff you have. Surely this isn't important. Sure, you lost a child, but you have another child. You have more children. And we don't enter into the real depth of the human experience and the pain of that. Even those who love us often don't understand what it is that we go through. They give simplistic, patronizing counsel. And that only causes us to be even more alone in our pain. They might not attack us as Pinnah did, this prideful superiority, but they're not there with us either. Now, of course, in this instance, Hannah is given a son. And you can go on and read the story. You'll find that she, that God keeps his bargain and she keeps her bargain and she brings him to Eli when he is weaned. Now, weaned we think of as being off the mother's milk. And so that would be about the age of one or so. And that's not at all what is meant by this. There were two kinds of motherly care that prepared. In fact, we see it in Jesus himself who sat at the feet of, of his mother Mary. There's the weaning, the mother's milk, but there's also the word of God, the milk of God. And the mother and the father are to sit down and prepare this human being for life. In these first seven years, those primary years of understanding they're loved and they're important and what justice and righteousness is and how to be honest and faithful and all the things that we need to learn to live a good life. She taught him, and he went then to serve God. And I'm sure in, in some measure she told him the story of her waiting, that in fact in her waiting she gained new strength, and in that strength she was able to be the mom that Samuel, the greatest priest, would need. But Samuel also, I'm sure, got it into his identity that in fact he's a special child who also has as his identity God's call on his life. And so when God calls him, then he responds. And he is the servant of God going through that amazing transition in the history of the people of God as the great high priest. Now it is true that not everything that we wait for, we get. And that's a whole other story and a whole different struggle and it has to do with then having to trust God even in the absence of. And that's a, something that is a, a powerful completion of the mature Christian life. But for this morning, let's, let's just put ourselves in this place and spend a moment with God. When we're Hannah and things aren't going the way we want and we're not, our desires are, are not being met, what does God say to us in that moment? What does he say to you now? if that's where you are. If something's easy and you feel superior and you feel uh, above others, what does God say to you if you're Peninnah? And if you're Elkanah and you're, you're downplaying or you're having your, your difficulty be downplayed by those who love you, what does God say to you then? Let's spend time with him. <laughs>